Good evening. I think we're about ready to start here. We were looking at uh, chapter 1, verse 29. Chapter 1, verse 29. What page is that on your notes about? Chapter 1, verse 29, page 9, what? 15, okay. I'll backtrack here a little bit here. Why don't we begin with a word of prayer? Our Heavenly Father, thank you for the privilege again of looking into the Word of God. We ask your blessing upon us as we contemplate this portion of the book of Philippians. May our hearts and minds be open to the truth of God's Word, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, let's start out with a little quiz here. You know, it's always good to have a little quiz. Um, number one, this is true and false. The opponents whom the Apostle Paul, let's see, the opponents whom the Apostle Paul tells the Philippians they should not be frightened of, this comes from verse 1, verse 28, were probably the Roman governmental authorities. Does that make sense? The opponents whom the apostle tells the Philippians they should not be frightened of were probably the Roman governmental authorities. True or false? True. And the reason people think that is because Paul says, um, he says in verse, he says, without being frightened in any way of those who oppose you, he says in verse 30, since you are going through the same struggle you saw I, I had, and now hear that I still have. So Paul, you know, had a struggle in Philippi with Roman authorities because it's a Roman colony. And he says, I still have this struggle with Roman authorities now and I'm under house arrest. So people think these opponents, people think that after Paul left Philippi, there was still opposition from governmental authorities or so forth to the church there. Number two, when Paul exhorts the Philippians Two, as in verse 27, 127 says, when Paul exhorts the Philippians to conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel, he uses a verb, that verb conduct yourselves, translated in NIV. He uses a verb that suggests the idea of conducting themselves as, as, as good citizens in a state. S-T-A-T-E. In a, true or false? True. Remember, that's the verb that is the, the noun form is in Philippians 3 says, your citizenship is in heaven. Your... So it, Paul is alluding here to uh, their Roman citizenship. They're in a Roman colony. I don't know. I don't know. It's, it's hard to maybe express. I guess we, we take our citizenship for granted. We're American citizens and so forth. But people in that day, not everybody was a Roman citizen. Remember, most of the population wasn't. 90 percent of the Roman Empire was not were not Roman citizens. Uh, you know, people in Palestine, people in Jerusalem, they were not Roman citizens. Uh, it was people living in Italy who were Roman citizens, and people who were who lived outside Roman citizens who lived outside in various provinces. So they 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 took this as a very proud. They were very proud. They were they 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 were very proud of being citizens. That was something to take great pride in. And Paul says. Just as you take pride in your Roman citizenships, take pride in that you are a Christian citizen. You're a citizen of heaven, as he says in Philippians 3. So he says, conduct yourselves. That word translated to conduct yourselves is conduct yourselves like a citizen should, like a, a noble citizen in a, in a Roman state should. Number three, 
Paul felt it would be better for the Philippians if he were put to death and go on to be with Christ. Paul felt it would be better for the Philippians if he were to be put to death and go on to be with Christ. That's that's one. Do I have one twenty-two there? Um, that's 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 false. Yes, one twenty-two, because Paul says. Remember what does he says there? He says what? Yes. What shall I choose? I don't know. So Paul says, I don't know. You know, what should I choose? If I if I had a choice, and I don't really, but if I did, I'm not really sure what I would choose. Then four, the word no in one twenty five. Paul says, remember one twenty five. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith. The word no probably expresses only Paul's personal conviction. True. I said true of that. It doesn't express absolute certainty because in the previous discussion he says, I don't know what's going to happen to me. I don't know whether I'm going to be set free or not, but I'm, I feel like, you know, apparently he thinks maybe his case is going to turn out well and he has this conviction, this kind of general assurance that he will be set free, but he doesn't know for certain. It's not that he's had a revelation from God here. Five, <clears throat> suffering for the Christian is, is as much a gift from God as in salvation itself. That's 129, as salvation itself. Suffering for the Christian is as much a gift from God as is salvation itself. True or false? True, because remember Paul says, we just just on that verse, 129, he says, it's been granted for you, it's been granted to you not only on behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him. We believe salvation is a gift, faith is a gift. It's been granted to you to believe, but it's also been granted to you to suffer for him. All right. <clears throat> so, we are looking at verse 29. And remember, verse 29 is part of this section that we began in 127. 127 through 230 that I called a call to sanctification. Remember, sanctification is a word that means holiness. To be sanctified is to be holy. So it's a call to holy living, to the right kind of living for a Christian, a call to holy living. And that's 127 through 230. And I said we can divide this up into uh, three sections. The first section is the duties of Christian citizenship. Remember he uses, he, 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 he says you're citizens of heaven. So 127 through 24, that's where we're at right now, the duties of a Christian, of Christian citizenship. And he lists some of those things. He lists the kinds of things that, that should be evident in our lives. They're sort of like duties or requirements or things that we should have. The first one is perseverance. That's 127 and 28. If you read a lot of books on this, on Philippians, you'll see that some people think, remember we said, people say, what is the theme of Philippians? And I, I was kind of poo-pooing that and saying, I'm not sure there's a central theme. But some people say perseverance is, or Paul is urging these Philippians to continue in the faith, to be firm. And he says that right there in 127. He says, I will know that you stand firm, striving together for the one faith. So Paul wants them to stand firm, to be faithful. 
I mean, that's a great characteristic, isn't it? That's a, that's a, that's a beautiful characteristic. We, we appreciate Christians who are faithful and persevere. So the first duty, he said, was you need to continue in the faith. That was 127 and 128. And remember in 128, he said, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. So they were probably getting some opposition, we said, maybe from the governmental authorities, and says, don't be frightened by that. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved and that by God. It's a little, we're, we're trying to make sense of that last time, and we we're saying that the tendency is, the, the tendency is if we're going through difficult times or something happens, well, let's just talk about people in general, just the average person in the world. The average person, everybody who's not a Christian, not a real Christian, they, they basically even work salvation. They believe that if they do good, they'll make it in the end. If they do bad, they might end up in hell. I mean, if they talk about heaven and hell, that's what they believe. And most people, we, I'm sure we all believed it before, if we were saved later, we believe that they believe that if something bad is happening, they think God is mad at them or something. That's what the ancients believed. That's why they appeased the gods. They offered sacrifices to gods because they thought, if something bad has happened in my life, Zeus must be unhappy with me. That's what the, the Greeks thought. Uh, so if, if things are going well, gods are pleased with me. So you have to offer sacrifices to gods and so forth to try to please the gods and so forth. And Paul is saying... You're going through some difficulties, some persecution, some suffering, some troubles. Don't take that as an omen or a sign that somehow God is displeased with us. Uh, it's true that sometimes God chastens Christians. That's true. But it's, it's, it's impossible to look at an individual Christian life most of the time and really know what's going on, you know. Uh, when a person in your church, you find out they've got cancer, well, we don't know what, you know, on the surface, it's impossible to know what God is doing. What is God doing? You know, they, they're trying to think about it. They're trying to figure it out. Why has God brought this in their life? There could be a lot of reasons. <laughs> we just don't understand all the reasons. It could be that God sees this thing as a way that this person is going to become stronger in their faith. It could be this might be a testimony to some. There's just a lot of possibilities. We don't know all that God is doing in our lives. But Paul is saying, don't just take it for granted. Don't act like the pagans that if, if you're going through this persecution that somehow God is mad at you. And that's where verse 29 comes in, remember I said, for it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for him. And so that's why I was trying to make that connection between verse 28 and verse 29 last time. And I said, sort of trying to paraphrase, I was saying that the, the Philippians might, might, might think that these conflicts that they're experiencing, these persecutions, these difficulties, we don't know what they are exactly, uh, they may appear frightening. They would appear frightening. And they could easily discourage you. And Paul says, don't allow that to happen. Don't interpret these bad things that come into your life as though God was necessarily displeased with you. That's the wrong interpretation. He says, this is really just part of God's plan for you to bring you to the point of salvation. God is working his will in your life. He's maturing you. 
And that's going to take some suffering. That's going to take some hardship. If everything is rosy and good all the time, we're not going to make much progress. It takes, we, we, have to, we have to go through difficult times. We have to learn to trust God. We have to depend upon God. We have to n- n- love God and appreciate God and know God and trust God and pray to God and get answers to prayers. This is just all part of growing as a Christian, and that takes difficulties. That takes problems. And so he's telling these Philippians, don't interpret these, these things that are happening as a bad thing. Interpret them as they're designed, they're part of God's design to save you. For it's been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe on him, but also to suffering. Because suffering, difficulties, distress, is the way God brings us to ultimate glorification. This is, this is how God brings about our maturity through temptations and trials and difficulties. He brings us to maturity. So I say here in this next paragraph, thus Paul says that suffering is a gift. And that's, as we talked about last time, that's very difficult to accept. That's, that's not easy. It's, it's, it's difficult to accept the inevitability of suffering. But Paul says it's not only inevitable, but it's a manifestation that God loves us. That's, that's hard, to, hard to get. But throughout Scripture, we have references to this sort of thing. When Paul was on his uh, first missionary journey in the province of Galatia, in Acts 14.22, he told the Galatians this. He says, we must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. Acts 14.22. We must go through many hardships Paul says this is just how God has laid planned thing, uh, plan things for us. If we're going to grow and become strong, we're going to have to face problems and difficulties. Paul told the Philippian, the Thessalonian church, 1 Thessalonians chapter, one, chapter 3, verses 3 and 4, he says, you've gone through a lot of persecution. If you read the, the Thessalonian epistles, you know that he, Paul talks a lot about their difficulties and persecutions. And he says, I'm sending Timothy to you to strengthen and encourage you, he says. Strengthen and encourage you. Um, And he says, so that no one will be unsettled by these trials. That's as long as we're going through tremendous trials. But he says, I'm going to send Timothy to strengthen and encourage you so you won't be unsettled, so you won't be so disturbed. He says, you know quite well we were destined for them. 1 Thessalonians 3, 4. Paul says, don't you know we were destined for these things? So I'm just saying, that's what Paul's telling Philippians. Don't be upset if you go to the doctor and you get a bad decision. Don't just go crazy. And I mean, I, I, we're all going to break down at that time, I'm sure. You know, no one wants to hear that C word, right? No one wants to hear those bad things. But we have to remember this is part of God's plan. Um, when Paul is writing to the Roman Christians, Romans 8.17, here's what he says in 8.17. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his suffering in order that we may also share in his glory. So if we're going to share in the glory of Christ and one day be glorified, completely sanctified, glorified, then we're going to have to share in his suffering. Verse 30, since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had, you saw I had 
when I was there in Acts chapter 16 in Philippi, and now hear that I still have. They remember Paul's being in the Philippian jail there, remember, and so forth. I say Paul reinforces his words on Christian suffering by calling attention to the correspondence between the Philippians' experience and his own conflicts. So the, the Philippians were experiencing the same sort of struggle, and we said this many times, apparently, through maybe governmental authorities. If you read Acts 16, you remember what happened to Paul and how he cast that de- the, the demon out of the demon-possessed woman and how he was put in the prison, Saul, Paul and Silas, you remember, and they prayed at night and so forth, that dramatic story there. So um, Paul is saying, we're in this together. <laughs> the Philippians and Paul, they're partners. We have the same sort of struggle. You're going through it, I'm going through it. All right, number three here, we're talking about qualities. We're talking about duties or the things that should uh, characterize a Christian who is a citizen of God, a citizen of, of the kingdom, a citizen of heaven. We said perseverance, stat- steadfastness, suffering, and then unity. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, unity. Um, verse 1, he says, Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, remember as a Christian we are united with Christ spiritually, we have a spiritual union with Christ, we're part of the body of Christ. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from His love, if any common sharing with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then he goes on to verse 2, then so-and-so. As I say here, grammatically, verses 1 through 4 constitute one sentence with one main clause, that is one main idea, the imperative of 2a, make my joy complete. So he's going to say in 2, then make my joy complete. That exhortation in 2a is grounded in the fourfold appeal of verse 1. So Paul says, if this is true, if this is true, if this is true, and it is, then make my joy complete. These are things that they will say yes about. Therefore, if there is any encouragement from being united with Christ, and there is, all Christians will agree, if there is comfort from His love, and there is, if there is common sharing with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, so these are, ten, these, are, these, are these function as kind of arguments. They're, they're, they're pleading. Paul is pleading. Listen. If any of this stuff is true, and you know it's true, then verse 2, then make my joy complete by being like-minded. See, where all these are talking about unity, aren't they? By being like-minded, having the same love, being one in the Spirit and of one mind. So remember we said that, I've said several times that one of the issues in Philippi was apparently a problem, maybe a little bit of a problem, of a lack of unity. And so he's hitting on that very carefully here now. I say here, although make my joy complete is the main verb, make my, the word complete is the main verb, it does not in this instance convey Paul's main thought. Paul's primary emphasis that the Philippians strive for unity and humility is spelled out in the clauses that follow, in what follows in 2b through 4. That is, 
Paul says, Make my joy complete, how? By being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and one in mind. So as Paul did back in chapter 1, verse 27, Paul again dresses this problem of the Corinthians' unity. Remember in 127 he says, Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you only come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel. So he's addressing it again now here at the beginning of chapter 2. So it's, it's the one problem, Paul says, that's preventing him from experiencing full joy when he thinks about the Philippians. He thinks about the Philippians and, you know, I'm just guessing here, but I think he probably thinks better about them than he does. When he thinks about the Corinthians, he thinks about a bunch of problems. You know, you read 1 Corinthians, a lot of problems. But when you read Philippians, there's not much to complain about. It's a very joyous book. Paul's happy. But here's the one thing. Here's the one thing that's preventing him from having the kind of joy he would really like to have, make my joy complete by doing this. So these are all, these phrases are designed to encourage them to be more unified, being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit of one mind. Verse 3, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, rather in humility, value others above yourself. Verses 3 and 4, and we'll see verse 4 in a moment, expand upon the idea of unity conveyed in verse 2. Each verse begins with a negative clause. Paul says in verse 3, do nothing out of selfish ambition. Verse 4, not looking to your own interests. So each verse, verse 3, begins with a negative statement. That's followed by a positive one introduced with a but. So Paul says, verse 3, do nothing out of selfish ambition, rather, or but, in humility, value others above yourself. Verse 4, <clears throat> not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interest of others. So Paul's main concern here is indicated by the word humility. So apparently, what is holding up Paul's joy, and what's standing in the way of the kind of unity he would like to see at Philippi is a certain lack of humility, rather in humility. Each of, one you, each of you to the interest of the others, looking not at his own interest, these kinds of things. So the thing that Paul wants for the Philippians is a humble-mindedness, we might say. Paul, in effect, defines humility in this context by its opposition to such expressions as selfish ambition. So the opposite of humility, what we say, what is humility? Well, it's the opposite is selfish ambition. Selfish ambition. The opposite is looking for your own, looking out for yourself. Um, verse 4, not looking to your own interest, looking out for yourself. Paul used this same word, selfish ambition, back in chapter 1, verse 17. You remember back there he talked about 
the fact that at Philippi there were certain people who were preaching Christ for the wrong motive. They were brothers, they were Christians, but they were preaching for the wrong motive. And one of the motives he accused them of was this sort of selfish ambition. So he's coming back to that right now. So Paul instructs his readers here to value others above yourselves. He's looking for humility. When he says value others, he's, he's, not, he's not saying don't be unrealistic about your own gifts and your own abilities. He doesn't mean, doesn't mean don't be unrealistic. You're, you're smarter than other, some other people are. I mean, that's just the way it is. You're smarter than some other people. You can do things other people can't do. Don't, don't assume that everybody else can do everything better than you can. No, they can't always do everything better than you can. You can do some things better than they can. You may have more wisdom about some other areas that they don't have wisdom about. He's not talking about being unrealistic. But he's saying here is don't have this, this superiority, this superiority complex, this selfish ambition, this vain conceit. So he's saying we've got to somehow let consideration for others precede concern for ourselves, putting ourselves ahead of our own needs. Um, Paul tells the Romans in Romans 12.10, Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourselves. So this is the kind of thing Paul sees that will that will remove this disharmony. A lot of times disharmony in a church, one of the problems could be a lack of humility, that is humble-mindedness. People have their own ambitions, they have their own desires, they want their own ways. They, it's hard to submit ourselves to and say, you know, I'm going to put other, another person's interest above my own. We Number one is always first. You know how it is. That's, this is a difficult battle we face here. But Paul says that's, that's what will help us in this unity. If we can somehow learn to value others above ourselves. It doesn't say don't dis, He's not saying disvalue yourselves. Don't, don't say that you're not valuable, but value others. Verse 4, not looking to your own interest, but each of you to the interest of others. Not looking to your own interest, but each to the interest of others. This clarifies verse 3. This is how one considers the other person as more important than oneself. Not by looking out for oneself, but especially the needs of others. By not looking out for oneself, but especially the needs of others. So, Paul is saying here the major obstacle to unity is not really differences of opinion. That's what we think sometimes. We think that the reason the church is not united sometimes and there are church splits and other things is because they just have differences of opinions. They, they think this or they think that. Somebody believes this, somebody believes that. Uh, the obstacle here is not the presence of these legitimate differences, which we all have differences. You know, some people may think we should have red carpet in our church, and some people think we should have blue. I've known churches who split over the color of the carpet, or which, you know, kind of piano they should buy. You know, we should we get this one, or we should get that one. And people have these legitimate differences. You know, these are legitimate differences. You know, people have different thoughts about these things. But Paul says, 
the, 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 the obstacle here is this self-centeredness. It's saying, my opinion is more important than your opinion, you know. What I think is the most important, and I'm always right here. So it's, it's this kind of self-centeredness that considers my rights, my plans, and my interests, they have to be put above everybody else's. And that's, you know, that's just the way we're created as sinful creatures, and we have to somehow subject that to the interest of others. And that's an ongoing battle. That's a constant struggle every day of our lives and in our churches. It's, it's always going to be that way. So there's the first major section that we're talking about here. Remember, this starts back with this call to sanctification, and Paul says he's going to list some duties of a Christian citizen. That is, if you're going to be the right kind of holy person, the right kind of mature Christian, here are the kinds of things. You should act like a citizen of heaven, and here are the kinds of characteristics you should have. Now he's going to give a description of Christ and his conduct as a model. So he's going to use an illustration. He's going to say, here's what I'm talking about. When I'm talking about this kind of humility, this self-humbleness, this, this, this thing that I'm looking for you to have in your lives, here's the example that I want to point to, and that's the example of Christ, Christ as a model of Christian humility. I say here, this section is closely tied to the previous section. There Paul indicated that the opposition being experienced by the Philippians calls for steadfastness, perseverance. However, steadfastness is impossible without spiritual unity. And if unity can come only about from an attitude of humility, then surely Paul must reinforce the critical importance of humility in the hearts of the believers. So you can see the the progression we just had. We want steadfastness. That comes from unity. And if we're going to have unity, we've got to have an attitude of humility. And so Paul wants to reinforce that, what he's been talking about, humility. And what better thing to do that than point to the humility of Christ himself. Um, And I say, and what better way to reinforce this, though, than by reminding the Philippians of the attitude and conduct of Christ to whom... They are united in faith. When admonishing the Corinthians to contribute generously for the sake of the poor in Jerusalem, Paul sets before them the example of Christ. Though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. In a similar fashion here, Paul appeals to the spirit of servitude that brought Jesus to his death. Now, this is, uh, this is uh, a well-known passage and uh, considered quite an important passage. I want to give you just a little thing here so we can look at some other translations here in this passage. Pass that down if you wouldn't. Kind of see how others look at this. Other translation. This um, passage has received tremendous amount of discussion among Bible teachers, Bible scholars over the years. I have books in my library that are just devoted to verses 5 through 8. 
5 through 11 here. Just 6 through 8, 6, 7, and 8, whole books. We've got in the seminary library, we've got numbers of books that are just devoted to these verses right here. Uh, they're devoted to, to them because it's a, it's, there's been a lot of debate about exactly how to interpret, how to translate certain phrases and so forth. So there's been a lot of questions about exactly how to, in, to translate these, these verses. And there's been a lot of discussion about what, do, what does that mean then once we translate it. This is a passage that's commonly called the kenosis passage. Kenosis is how it's commonly referred to. You'll hear, hear, you'll hear pe- preachers and others talking about the kenosis of Christ or the kenosis. And when they talk about the kenosis, <clears throat> they're talking about this passage right here. And they, they get that from verse 7, from Philippians 2.7. Now, if you notice, the King James in Philippians 2.7 says... Paul made himself of, uh, um, but made himself, Christ made himself of no reputation. That's how the King James had it. The ESV has, but he, but emptied himself. That is, Christ emptied himself. And notice the NIV says, rather he made himself nothing. It's very similar to the King James here. The, the Greek word there in verse 7 that's translated and made himself of no reputation, or the one that's translated in the ESV more literally like emptied himself, is a Greek word here. Uh, It's a verb, kanao here. And it's from this verb that we get this term kenosis. Now, literally, this means to empty in a literal sense. So this is called the kenosis or the emptying of Christ or the self-emptying. And so, you know, if you looked on the Internet and you typed in Google kenosis, you'd find a bunch of stuff about the kenosis. And they'd talk about this passage and they'd discuss about what does that mean, the kenosis of Christ? In what sense did he empty himself and so forth? So there's a lot of discussion. There's a lot of discussion about how to translate the term and a lot of discussion of what the term means. Um, so, I'm, I'm got, kind of setting that as the backdrop as we go through this here, and I'm going to refer to this more as we go through, but I'm going to refer to these various translations here, so I'm just kind of setting up the passage. You might as well just, you know, just memorize that that's the kenosis, because you're going to hear that, that term, I'm going to say that term several times, and we're talking about this emptying of Christ, what does that mean, and what sense did he empty himself, or how did he do that, or... What does that all mean? All right, let's start here with the exhortation in verse 5 to begin with, and we'll work our way through this. Paul says in verse 5, In your relationship with one another, with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. I say the verses to follow will describe Christ as the great example of the kind of humble attitude Paul wants the Philippians to emulate. Remember, humility is sort of the key to unity. A self humility, and so here's the example of Christ. So have the same mindset as in Christ Jesus, and he's going to describe that mindset for us. Now we come to verses six through eight. Um, verses six through eight, Christ humiliation. 
And then if you'll notice, um, if you were to skip over to number three, um, if you pay a page over, you'll see Christ's exaltation, verses 9 through 11. Christ's humiliation, verses 6 through 8. Christ's humiliation, verses 9 through 11. Uh, Christ's exaltation, verses 9 through 11. Now, sometimes this whole thing is called the kenosis passage from 2, 5 through 11. But the kenosis, or the emptying part, is more likely the 6, 7, and 8. So those are the three verses that we're most concerned about here as far as when I keep talking about this kenosis over and over and over again. So let's look at this Christ humiliation, verses 6 through 8. I say here, verses 6 through 11 are divided into two parts. <clears throat> Christ humili- Christ 6 through 8, Christ's humiliation. He humbled himself. He emptied himself. Verses 9 through 11, Christ's exaltation. He was exalted. Verses 6, 7, and 8 have two sentences controlled by two main verbs accompanied by the reflexive reflexive pronoun. When I say the reflexive pronoun, I mean the pronoun himself. Better here. So um, we got two sentences, two main verbs. Both of them have this reflexive pronoun. The first one, he made himself nothing and he humbled himself. Now we're talking about the NIV translations here. Um, get my sheet here again. Uh, We're talking about the NIV translation here. When he made himself nothing, um, verse uh, verse 7 and verse 8, he humbled himself in verse 8. So those are the main two ideas. He made himself nothing, he humbled himself. The basic thought in verses 6 through 8 is that the divine and pre-existent Christ... Does everybody know what we say when we talk about the pre-existence of Christ? We're saying that Christ, the second person of the Godhead, existed before he became a man, Jesus Christ. In other words, he was born in Bethlehem of Judea, he was born of the Virgin Mary, but but he was already existing as the second person. Sometimes we say the Lagos. He was existing as the second person. He took upon himself a hum- humanity. He took himself upon himself a human nature. So we're saying the pre-existent Christ. The basic thought is that the divine and pre-existent Christ did not regard the advantage of his deity as grounds to avoid the incarnation. The incarnation means enfleshment, that the word became flesh, John 1, remember? So... The second person of the Godhead, who is equal with God the Father and so forth, all power, he took upon himself a human nature, became a human being. He became the God-man. He will forever be the God-man. He's always going to be the God-man. He's a glorified God-man, but he'll always be the God-man. So we're saying uh, he did not regard the advantage of his deity as grounds to avoid this becoming a human being. Instead, he was willing to regard himself as nothing by taking on human form. Here is God willing to take upon himself a human form. Why? In order to die for the sins of his people. 
Then he further lowered himself in servanthood. He went even further for God to take upon humanity. That's one thing. But he lowered himself further in servanthood by obeying God to the point of his ignominious death. That is his terrible and awful and wicked death. This death on the cross. So there's two steps here. He took upon himself humanity, and then he went either and further and died on the cross. These, these show this absolute and complete humiliation that he was willing to endure. All right, so we're looking at his humiliation, verses 6 through 8. This is what's normally called the kenosis passage here. Let's look at that, the initial statement of it. The initial statement, that's the first part of verse 6. Who being in the very nature God. We're reading from the NIV here. Who being in the very nature God. Now some translations will say here, like the King James, who being in the form of God. The NIV is very good here. The translation is very, very good. And it reflects a lot of, a lot of debate and discussion and scholarship here. The word form may give the wrong idea if one says he's in the form of God. Well, is he really God? You know, the form of God? Is that the same thing as God? Yes, yes, it is. The word form here means whatever qualities it takes to make a thing a thing. Whatever qualities it takes to make someone God, he had those qualities. We see the, the same expression used in verse 7, if we looked at the King James translation, and took upon himself the form of a servant. Christ became whatever it was that we say is required to make a person a servant, Christ became that. And that's what we're saying here in verse 5, uh, verse 6. He had whatever attributes or qualities that are necessary to be God, he had those. That's why the NIV says here, I think very correctly, who being in the very nature God. They're trying to explain that to us. They're trying to bring that out to us, that this expression means he had all the attributes, and the nature of God. As I say here, Jesus possessed whatever qualities or attributes necessary to make him God. Jesus possessed everything that was essential to being God, Jesus Christ. So remember, that's the thing we talk about with the Trinity, Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, equally God. Same power, same attributes, same qualities. They're exactly the same in, in those things, okay? So first of all, he says, he's stating, making the statement of who he is, who being in the very nature of God. Then the second part of verse 6, did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. Did not consider this equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. As I say here, since one cannot take advantage of something one does not already have, this language argues for the deity of Christ. He didn't consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. He wasn't selfish. Here he is, equal with God, God the Son. He was willing to take on this humanity. He didn't consider this equality with God something to use for his own advantage. Now this again, is, this is a difficult phrase to translate. You can see what the King James had. Who being in the form of God thought it not robbery to be equal with God. Exactly, you know, that, what exactly does that mean? Uh, the ESV has pretty much the same thing. Did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, to be held on to. The NIV, I think, has the best translation here. There's, 
there's lots of discussion about this among Greek scholars, just tons of papers and papers and papers. This has been discussed for hundreds of years, but this is, this is really a very good translation. This is probably exactly what it means. It couldn't be done any better, I would say here. He did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. We're trying to show the humility of Christ here. Here he is, God, and he's willing to take upon himself humanity. Then we see Christ voluntarily act, act positively stated. And then we'll see in the, um, the, the negative part of it. But let's look first at the positive part. Christ's voluntary act positively stated. Rather, he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. Rather, he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. Now notice the NIV translates, he made himself nothing. The King James says, but he made himself of no reputation. The King James is saying pretty much what the NIV is saying when it says, he made himself of no reputation. The NIV says, he made himself nothing. Now notice the ESV says here, but he emptied himself. There's that verb, kanao, here. And where we get that word kenosis, he emptied himself. The New American Standard says he emptied himself. So that's where this phrase, the kenosis, comes from. And the question is, what does it mean? Does it mean literally Christ emptied himself? The King James, I think, is right here, and the NIV is right here. They're taking this in a, an illustrative and metaphorical sense. But let's talk a little bit about this emptying here for just a second. Um, I've used the phrase a few times. I've, maybe I've talked about liberal Christians. Sometimes I wonder if everybody understands, you know, liberal Christians. What is a liberal Christian? How did we get liberal Christians? That is, we have people who call themselves Christians who really don't believe what the Bible teaches primarily. They would call themselves Christians, but they don't believe in the authority of Scripture, the inspiration. They believe it's just a religious book. They don't believe in the deity of Christ. They don't believe in the virgin birth of Christ. Are you familiar with that idea? Does that seem strange or whatever? Uh, it may seem strange, but how did this happen? Well, it probably goes back to the fact in Europe there, there, was never, there was never until America came along any such thing as, as a separation of church and state. So let's take uh, England, which is, you know, um, many of us are, are from English descent. So in England, there was the Church of England. There was the, the Roman Catholic Church, the Church of England. Still in England today, there is the Church of England. And if you pay taxes in England, you pay taxes to the Church of England. You have to pay for that Church of England, you know. Uh, you, you pay for those ministers who minister in the Church of England as part of your taxes. Well, of course, we wouldn't have that in America because we believe in separation of church and state and we wouldn't pay taxes to support a religious group or so forth. But that's not been true throughout the world. Throughout the history of, of, of Christianity, church and state have always been united. And so if you went to a place like Europe, you would find in the universities there still, most of these universities were established like Oxford and Cambridge in England, were established really for the training of Christians, and they trained Christian ministers and so forth. So you had this, this togetherness of church and state. 
What happened over time? Science came in, the Enlightenment came in, uh, new thought came in, evolution came in to universities and so forth in our country and so forth. I mean, our country, our universities like Harvard was, Harvard was established, the first college in America was established for the training of Christian ministers, you know. So what happened over time is, is that you have people in those positions who teach there, who are professors there, and over time they began to accept ideas about evolution and so forth, modern science, many scientific ideas, and they began to ridicule the Bible. Because people grow up, they take these positions in these schools, and they're not really saved people. Say, why would somebody want to be a professor of religion at Oxford if you're not a saved person? Well, it's why do you want to be a professor of anything at, at your U of M or you know, professor of social science or a professor of anything? You know, it's just a it's just a subject they're interested in. They're interested in the subject of religion and so forth. And so at Harvard today, you know, you you can go there and get a a divinity degree and so forth and become a minister. What would you learn at Harvard if you went there today and were trained? You would learn that the Bible is a bunch of myth. It's a mythological book. Genesis doesn't really describe the creation or anything because we know the word it took four and a half billion years for the earth to evolve. Jesus, he was, a, he was a teacher. He was a man, but he wasn't born of a virgin. He didn't really perform those miracles. They were just myths made up and so forth. That's liberal Christianity. And that Christianity affected, has affected all of America. So many of the mainline denominations, we call them liberal Christians. Methodism, there's hardly any real Bible-believing Methodist around anymore. You know, you, you, can't, you can go to Vanderbilt, that's a Methodist school. Or, you know, if you, if you were training for, 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 if you were trained in the United Methodist Church, if you go to the United Methodist Church anywhere around here, the minister is unlikely to be a Bible-believer. He's very unlikely. He would say, okay, the Bible's a good book, but they're interested in other issues, homosexual rights, the environment. They have, they have other issues. They're not interested in biblical issues. I say all that to say this. As this liberalism was coming around, some people seized on this passage where it says, he emptied himself. This word can mean literally emptying, to empty a jar from water out of a jar. And so liberals jumped on this and said, Aha! Jesus emptied himself. He gave up his deity. So one of the, one, the kenosis means to empty oneself. And so liberal Christians said, This emptying means that Jesus gave up his deity. He wasn't really a god or anything like that. He just emptied himself. And so conservatives came along, conservative Christians, and said, No, that can't mean that. It can't mean he emptied himself of his deity because we know when he was on earth he was still God, the God-man. So they took the emptying to mean something else. So books and books and articles have been written on what is this empty? What does it mean when he said he emptied himself? As conservative Christians, we would say he didn't empty himself of his deity. He didn't give up his deity. God can't stop being God. But what did he empty? And some people have said things like, well, he emptied himself of his glory. He wasn't in a glorified state. There's a lot of answers to all that. Now, I think all those answers are wrong. <laughs> and the NIV thinks they're wrong, and the King James thinks they're wrong. Because this word empty sometimes doesn't mean literally emptying. It has kind of a metaphorical meaning. In fact, 
every time that the word is used in the New Testament, it's used four other times by Paul. This word is used five times in the New Testament, this word empty, five times. Here's one of them. There's four other times when it's used. And every time it's used, it's not used to a mean of literally empty. It's what we call a metaphor. It's not literal. Let me give you an example. The first time this is used, Romans 4.14. Romans 4.14. Here's the King James. For if they which are of the law be heirs, faith is made void. That's the phrase. Faith is, faith is emptied. Faith is made void. See, that's not a, a literal emptying. Faith is not, you can't literally empty faith. The ESV says, for if, for, if it is the, if, for if it is the adherents of the law who are to be heirs, faith is null. Faith is not literally emptied. It's null. It's, 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 it's not worth anything. Here's the NIV. Faith means nothing. So they translate the word empty there, the word we're talking about here, faith means nothing. So it's not a literal emptying. We're not, we're not asking, what is faith emptied of? We're just saying faith is null. It's, it's useless. It's void. So that's Romans 4.14. Here's the next one, 1 Corinthians 1.17. Here's the King James, 1 Corinthians 1.17. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross should be made of none effect. See, the NIV, the King James is taking it, 1 Corinthians 1.17, they're taking it in a non-literal. It doesn't say Christ should be emptied. Here's the ESV. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied. Well, the ESV says emptied of its power. We don't mean that somehow power is actually poured out. It's just a metaphor. It's an expression. The NIV says, lest the cross be emptied of its power the same way. The next verse is 1 Corinthians 9.15. All these are Paul. Every one of these, this kanao, is Paul. The first one is 1 Corinthians 9.15. Paul says, the King James, but I have used none of these things, neither have I written these things, for it should so done, for it be so done unto me. For if it were better for me to die, then any man should make my glorying, glorying, glorying void. There's that word. The word void is the word empty. Here's the ESV. For I would rather die than have someone deprive me of my ground for boasting. You can't even tell the word empty is there. So literally it says that my boasting not be emptied. <laughs> That's what the Greek says. That my boasting not be emptied. Well, the King James says that my glorying be, be void or that deprive me of the ground of my boasting. My point of all that is to say it doesn't mean emptied literally in a sense. It's a metaphor. It's an expression, a figure of speech. The last one is 2 Corinthians 9.3. Paul says in the King James, Yet have I sent the brethren, lest our boasting of you should be in vain. It should be in vain. That's 2 Corinthians 9.3. The ESV says that our boasting about you should not prove empty in this matter. The, the, the NIV says should not prove hollow. My point of all this, is to, this whole discussion, is to say this word here, kanao or the kenosis, it doesn't mean a literal emptying. Christ didn't empty himself of anything. It's just an expression for 
for voidness, for nothingness. As the King James got it right here, I think, when, when they translated this expression, uh, who made himself of no reputation. That's how they translate. He emptied himself. They said they made himself of no reputation. But the NIV, I think it has it very well, says he made himself nothing. He emptied himself. Yes, he emptied himself of any pride, any arrogance, any, any, uh, any desires of his own. <laughs> he was the perfect example of humility. He emptied himself of any of his own desires. He, he, he made himself very humble. The NIV says he made himself nothing. So the point of this, I say, is there's a lot of discussion about this. This is a big theological problem. What does it mean when it says Christ emptied himself? Well, it just means that Christ was not arrogant. He didn't, he didn't decide that he had to do his own thing. Christ was willing to submit himself to the will of the Father. And if God can do that, if God is willing to submit himself and take this humble position, then what should that say to you Philippians? You see how this example is working here. Christ is the great example. So as I say here, Christ voluntarily act positively stated. Rather, he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. I say here, as God our, as God our Lord made himself nothing, how? By taking the nature of a servant and by being born like other human beings. He doesn't say he exchanged the nature of God for the nature of a servant, but he manifested the nature of God in the nature of a servant. He was still God, taking the very nature of a servant. He looked like a servant, even though he was God in the flesh. The next two phrase, participle phrases are modal. They, they give the manner in which Christ made himself nothing. How did he make himself nothing? By taking the nature of a servant and being made in human likeness. So this taking the nature of a servant is really expanded upon by being made in human likeness. So you can see how this is supposed to mean, what this is supposed to mean to the Philippians and what it's supposed to mean to us. When we think we have to have our own way, <laughs> when we think we have to have our rights and our desires, Look at the example of Christ. Here's God himself coming down, taking the form of a human being. We know if you've read the Gospels how he was treated, how people looked at him and treated him and so forth. You know, we couldn't take that, you know. <laughs> we, we would say, let's get even with these people. Let's, let's just, you know, he could have demolished the whole earth with one word. He could have just, you know, gotten rid of all of his enemies instantly. So this is the kind of thing that Paul is, is pushing and explaining the Philippians here, this tremendous humility of Christ. Well, I see our time is up here. Let's come back to this, and we'll kind of finish this up next time and, and see his exaltation, see what happened to this one, the Christ, the God-man who was eventually exalted. All right, we'll see you next week, Lord willing.